Welcome to the Infinite Women Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Tyra, and today I'm joined by Jess Bujaya, a CERC postdoctoral fellow in CSIRO's Australian eHealth Research Center, Neurodevelopment, and Plasticity team, to talk about Dr. Marion Diamond. So why don't we start with why Dr. Diamond was considered one of the founders of modern neuroscience? Yeah, so I think that's really uh, all to do with the term neuroplasticity. So she was the first person that thought of the term where the brain is actually able to grow and adapt uh, to be able to absorb information and apply that in the future. Uh, So she looked into enriching the environment for children, uh, particularly with toys and companions, uh, in a way that we were actually able to change uh, the anatomy of their brain. Uh, So the implication of this was that the brain benefits uh, from an enriched environment. And there was also a physical movement component as well, right? So the brain uh, needs to actually have uh, your body to be active uh, and it will perform better uh, if it is. Uh, Vitamin D, uh, so being out in the sun, has actually been shown uh, to improve uh, our cognitive function as well. Uh, So I think all of those things there uh, is really uh, the variables that can improve the way uh, we perform in our daily life. So actually getting off my couch and going for a walk is more important than I wish it were. (laughs) Yes, yes, it is beneficial. (laughs) And her work has been highly influential, not just in the research that she herself published, but obviously science is a field where everyone else is building on the work of their predecessors. So what are some of the things that have come out of other people building on her research? So the first one uh, that I'm thinking of is the growth mindset. Uh, So that was by Carol Dweck. Uh, And it's really based on uh, the thought that if you believe uh, that our intelligence and talents uh, can be developed over time, that's rather than thinking that it's just fixed uh, and we can never change anything. So I think that's a nice connection back to that neuroplasticity. Uh, The next one would be uh, the marshmallow test. So this is looking at uh, the thought that self-control can actually be... um, resulting in uh, better outcomes. So this was a nice little experiment uh, actually with uh, marshmallows uh, where the child uh, for more than 40 years over and over again, uh, the groups were waiting patiently uh, for a marshmallow and they would succeed uh, more uh, when they had that delayed gratification. Uh, Further one would be Spark, uh, so that's by John Rady, and that's looking into the mind-body connection. Uh, So this is research uh, that proves that exercise is uh, our best defense against many things, including depression, uh, ADD, uh, addiction, uh, aggression uh, to menopause, and uh, also Alzheimer's. Um, And I think uh, that's a really uh, nice uh, thing to look into. Uh, And the last one is uh, grit. So that's by Angela Duckworth, and that's uh, defining uh, it as passion and perseverance for long-term goals. So that uh, has a nice connection back to uh, the Walter test, I think, with um, Walter Mitchell. And so beyond academia, um, which obviously she did groundbreaking work, but um, even outside of that, she really did work to ensure that there was a practical benefit from her findings um, for people and animals all over the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, So her ideas and her efforts for education promoted uh, early nurturing and educational enrichment of children all over the world. Uh, Her personal efforts led to the building of orphanages worldwide and focused on enriched environments for impoverished uh, children. 
work uh, also on environmental enrichment uh, led to significant improvements in laboratory and zoo animal care. So basically, if we're not bored, we're healthier. <laughs> yes, yes. It's good to have uh, an active brain. It's also interesting to note that she was the first woman science instructor at Cornell University, uh, where she taught human biology and comparative anatomy from 1955 to 1958. Um, she was also one of the first professors in her field at the University of California, Berkeley, and she started there as a lecturer in 1960. Um, but one thing that struck me when I was looking at her story was that she completed her PhD the same year she gave birth to her first child in 1953. And then she started teaching at Cornell the same year she had her second child in 1955. And that's just really unusual because a lot of the women I read about having kids just ended their career. So she must have had some form of like childcare support that most women didn't have at the time. And I feel like that's something we don't acknowledge as much when we're talking about yeah. both both historically and today. Yes, uh, 100%. I have to agree. I think it's a very... Uh challenging world out there for women to succeed uh, in their careers uh, with also those uh, family commitments they have. More commonly, uh, she did definitely experience uh, sexism. And uh, there was a story that she recounted where, you know, she, obviously she was one of the first scientists to say that the brain can change and can adapt. Um, and so she was fighting against the status quo. And at a meeting, she recalled that a man stood up after her talk and said loudly, young lady, the brain cannot change. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've actually had uh, similar experiences to that in my career as well. So I think it is quite common uh, for females to have that pushback from their male colleagues. Uh, quite early in my career, um, I was told not to take on an engineering or science uh, based career because I don't have the mathematical brain that males do. Uh, <laughs> but I think it it just, uh, yeah, it made me push harder to actually get there because that was that was my goal. Yeah. And I think anytime, anytime you're pushing back against the status quo, there is always um, pushback from the yes. status quo, like the people who benefit from how things are um, and don't want to acknowledge that they may be wrong. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But her career also was incredibly long. Like she was working for about 60 years, um, publishing influential research well into the early 2000s. Um, so she was in her 70s at that point. She didn't actually retire until she was 87. And unusually for most of the people I talk about, just because of timing, um, she was an internet sensation. So her YouTube integrative biology lectures were the second most popular college course in the world in 2010, according to a New York Times article from that year. Yeah, yeah, that, that's incredible. <laughs> and so one of the things she's known for is um, studying pieces of Einstein's brain in 1984. And I mean, for me, this is very weird and sketchy because... Thomas Stoltz Harvey, a pathologist, literally stole Einstein's brain during his 1955 autopsy. He spent three months slicing it up and later gave pieces away to researchers. And he was just never held accountable in any way for literally stealing the man's brain. Yeah, Einstein's family uh, let him keep it uh, as long as it was used uh, for medical purposes. So I think that's very interesting. Dr. Diamond found out that certain parts of his brain were found to have a higher proportion of glial cells than the average male brain. So what does that 
mean in a neuroscience setting? Yes, yeah. So uh, glial cells uh, consist of uh, what's known as microglia, astrocytes, and oligodendrocyte cells. Um, And they actually make up a really large amount of the mammalian brain uh, and were originally thought of as non-functional neuronal glue. So I think this is uh, a really interesting part. Um, So astrocytes are actually uh, the most abundant and uh, largest glial cell in the central nervous system. And uh, we've recently found that they actually play a critical role in synaptic transmission. So this is where our uh, neuron cells communicate with each other. Uh, neuroplasticity, uh, which we've spoken about a bit, where the brain changes through growth and reorganization to absorb and retain new information, uh, as well as neuroprotection and maintenance of the central nervous system. So, for example, where debris is uh, cleared from the brain and inflammation is uh, modulated. Uh, I think what's really interesting and, uh, in fact, the connection to what I currently look into is that astrocytes have been identified to be essential contributors to information processing and cognition. Uh, And so I currently work at the intersection of neuroscience and neuroimaging, and we look at investigating preterm, neonates, brain, macro and microstructural using uh, magnetic resonance imaging to identify associations with later cognitive outcomes. And this includes language, memory, and behavior. And we have found uh, that previous research has identified that maternal education, socioeconomic status, sex, uh, gestational age at birth, postmenstrual age at magnetic resonance imaging, early brain injury, regional brain volume, brain volumetric growth, and brain shape are all associated with these later cognitive outcomes. So we want to use these variables and potentially others that have also been associated with cognitive outcomes to be able to predict them uh, at two years or maybe even six years uh, for children at that school readiness age uh, using just that information uh, collected at birth. Wow, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really excited to see what we can find. (laughs) My understanding is that the brain is more plastic when you're younger. So things like learning languages is easier when you're a kid. Yeah, it seems like really getting in early is key if you want to produce the best outcomes for people. That's exactly right. Um, And that's that's really what we want to do. So a lot of uh, particularly motor-related conditions, so for example, cerebral palsy, uh, will be diagnosed uh, when we actually see those motor deficits. And uh, it's a bit harder to be able to help them out uh, to correct them because the brain uh, does become less plastic as we get older. So we want to be able to know which babies might develop those problems, and we want to be able to help them earlier so that uh, they can have a better quality of life and better outcomes. I'm just looking at the list of factors that you mentioned, and it's really fascinating to me that things like you mentioned maternal education. So in that case, it's not just, you know, nurture versus nature, it's nurture of the parent that is impacting yeah. the nature of the child. And I know this is a huge question, but have you learned anything about the mechanisms, like how it actually works? That is a great question. <laughs> I think it is uh, multifactored. So maternal, it wouldn't just be because uh, the the mother might have a higher education, potentially that the her level of education will influence the way she behaves around the child. Uh, so if a mother is more... Uh, nurturing if in fact uh, something that we've just heard of recently um, a mother with a more melodic voice 
uh, can actually affect the way the baby is able to um, respond to a sentence structure. Um, so I think that's very interesting. So we can actually measure uh, like brain waves uh, using EEG, uh, and we see that there's actually an alter in the brain waves when the structure of the sentence is not correct. Um, so I think that's that's pretty cool. So a baby who can't speak can actually identify if that sentence doesn't make sense. Yeah, another one, uh, a big factor, so gestational age at birth. Um, so if a baby is born uh, too early, the brain hasn't actually completed its development. Uh, and it's a little bit harder for the brain to um, come to that correct uh, stage, or maybe not so much correct, but uh, that old enough, that term equivalent age brain, uh, the development is um, potentially more difficult once the baby is already born. Uh, so we need to try to nurture uh, those babies more to be able to reach their uh, their greatest outcome. Uh, postmenstrual age at uh, magnetic resonance imaging. So I think that one's a little bit of an interesting one. And I uh, we believe that it might actually be because the babies who have a later scan, uh, they might have actually had more complications earlier in life, and that's why we had to take an earlier scan. So it's not the scan affecting their cognitive outcome. It's the period of time that we had to wait to be able to get this scan that we would assume is why they might have the later cognitive outcomes that, that might be poorer. So what I'm hearing is that some of these factors are probably correlation rather than causation. So with the MRI, but also, you know, going back to the maternal education, it's not that mom having a PhD is inherently causing this, but the correlations of things like, you know, people with PhD more likely to have come from a privileged background and all yeah. the benefits that that has. Yes. Yeah. No, you're definitely correct. Um, some of them are more correlation, definitely that uh, education one, uh, the socioeconomic status. So people with a, um, a high socioeconomic status might have more access to uh, greater healthcare. Um, so they might be able to help out their babies more. Uh, some other ones, uh, like, for example, early brain injury, I'd say that one would be more causation. So if we do have damage in our brain, uh, it could uh, definitely affect those areas that are more uh, linked to cognitive outcomes, as well as regional brain volume. Uh, and I do wonder if that is also uh, something that Einstein may have had. So as well as those larger number of astrocytes potentially had uh, greater uh, regional brain volume in areas that are linked to cognition. And one interesting one that I think that we are trying to explore further now is the brain shape. So our brain is sort of, uh, it's like a, a wiggly mass um, yeah. of curves and dips. So we want to know if those curves, the depth of those curves, the thickness um, of the brain uh, is all linked back to our, our future cognition. I feel like I heard once that the wrinklier your brain is, the better is that, Am I just making that up? Yeah, so no, no, that's, that's definitely true. So as uh, so babies uh, actually have much smoother brain. Uh, so babies that are born uh, quite early, so say um, between that late 20 week uh, to quite early 30 week mark, their brain isn't, it doesn't have all those lumps and uh, dips. It's quite smooth. Uh, and as we get older, our adult brain gets um more of those curves, more of those dips. 
uh, and that's that's how we uh, develop through our life. Join us next time on the Infinite Women podcast. And remember, well-behaved women rarely make history.